Welcome to another episode of Live from the Pat Conroy Literary Center right here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Jonathan Haupt, the Executive Director of our nonprofit Conroy Center. And my guest this month is no stranger to our Conroy Center and is, in fact, another one of the uh, 67 contributing writers to an obscure, rarely discussed book called Our Prince of Scribes. Writers remember Pat Conroy. Once upon a low country childhood, Valerie Sayers was a Beaufort High School student of Pat Conroy's. He's now the William R. Keenan Jr. Professor of English at the University of Notre Dame and the author of a new collection of short stories, The Age of Infidelity, which we'll be discussing on the show. Valerie's also the author of six novels, most recently The Powers. Her earlier novels, Who You Love and Brain Fever, were both named New York Times Notable Books of the Year and her novels, Due East and How I Got Him Back, were adapted as a single film, also titled Due East. Her stories, essays, and reviews have appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, Commonweal, Plowshares, Image, Witness, Prairie Schooner, and they've cited in Best American Short Stories and Best American Essays. She's also been awarded a National Endowment for the Arts Literary Fellowship and two Pushcart Prizes for fiction, and in 2018, she was inducted into the South Carolina Academy of Authors, our Palmetto State's Literary Hall of Fame. Valerie, thanks so much for joining me. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure. I appreciate you making the time. It's good to hear you. Uh, hey. I was so excited when the announcement went out that you had a story collection coming out because I encountered several of the stories in the book and didn't realize the, the full scope uh, what you can produce, nor that so many could be linked together thematically. So The Age of Infidelity uh, came out just recently from Slant Books, and of the 11 stories, if I have my math right, I believe eight have previously appeared in some form in journals. But at what point did you start to realize that these stories were speaking to each other, that there was a, a collected volume that could be assembled from these pieces? Pretty late in the process, as in after all the stories were written. You know, I've, I've published, um, I don't know the exact number, but somewhere around 25 stories over the, probably over the last 25 years or so. Uh, I'm an occasional story writer, and it always seemed to me that they were going in many different directions. But every now and again, I would I would get out a pen and pencil and um try to figure out how I might squeeze them in together. And it was really only um, in the last couple of years that I began to see the ones that took place in the historical past and the ones that took place in the future might actually work together. Over what span of time were, were these particular stories written? You mentioned, and it sounds like you're writing about a story a year, definitely an occasional story writer at that pace. But what's the time frame? For the, for the oh, that's a, that's a great question. I, I think the first, the, I'm very fond of this story, The Other Woman, and that hmm. was actually the first short story um, I published back in the 90s. I, I wrote short stories for my MFA at Columbia University, and they were pretty god awful. Um, they were they were they were enough to keep me in the program, but um, they also convinced me that if I had any small gift at all, it was probably not for the short story. It was for a longer form. Um, the stories kept including in true Faulknerian fashion 
characters from other stories, and the plot points kept connecting, and it became clearer and clearer to me that what I really wanted to be was a novelist when I grew up. So it it wasn't until I was well into my teaching career that I thought to myself, this is sort of awful that I'm teaching these undergraduates fiction writing workshops in which the short story is very much the easiest form to teach without publishing any short stories. So I just set myself the task of, of finally getting around to getting better at the short story. And um, I got lucky with the first one that I, that I was doing under, the, under these conditions. That's the one called The Other Woman. And it came out, it, it, I was actually asked for a story for an anthology. So I had a deadline and, uh, and awaiting publication. And, um, you know, I found that I really enjoyed the puzzle of a short story, the, com- the compression of the squeezing of it down to its most essential elements. And so every now and again when I'm tired of uh, where I am in a novel or know I need to take a break or when I'm between projects or when I really should be grading papers, that's when a short story to me. I think all of that's really important to hear for our listeners who may be burgeoning writers or folks who are thinking about writing and just can't figure out how to cross that threshold. Um, you mentioned uh, that early on you didn't, you didn't think particularly highly of pieces that you were writing, and it's something you circled back around. And you also said something, or at least implied it, that's a lesson I try to teach quite a bit as well. And it's very often the best way to learn something is to force yourself to teach it and then you have a responsibility and an accountability to know your stuff as well, too. Uh, we had, exactly um, right. <laughs> we had uh, a really fine uh, writer of novels and short stories come visit us a couple of times, Jill McCorkle, who I think you know. Uh, Jill was asked by our audience at one point, um, if there were any connections between the skills that she brings to bear when she's writing a short story versus when she's writing a novel. And, you know, seemingly off the cuff, maybe this is stock material, maybe she says it all the time, but seemingly off the cuff in that moment, she said, writing a short story has as much in common with writing a novel as writing a novel has in common with baking a cake. I thought it was a nice comparison to make. It sounds like you find that to be true as well, that these things are not intertwined. The characters may bleed through, but the, the skills you bring to the project seem like they're completely different. That's right. I, I think when you're writing a novel, you're just, you know, you you are discovering a new planet, um, and, and your spaceship is traveling in the dark. But when you're writing a short story, uh, you, you almost, I, in my experience, you almost, always have to get a draft down pretty fast. Um, there's, a, uh, there's a whole lot of work to go after that first draft, but to see the shape of the story, it has to come fast. And, it, you know, it doesn't require the patience and the faith that, that a novel does. Um, it requires kind of the impatience to, to tell the story, to find out the end of the story. Oh, I agree. Absolutely. And, and what you said earlier about uh, concision being key to the process, I mean, that's true of poetry as well. And I know from our previous conversations that uh, you occasionally do a poem, maybe one of those a year as well, and uh, that you have right. accidentally signed up for a poetry class. I'm wondering if there's a, a 
any sort of connectivity between those two for you, between uh, being an occasional poet and an occasional story writer? I think those those two forms do have a lot more in common. Um, and um, in some ways, you know, and, and I, I miss writing poetry more regularly. Um, it's very much a, it was very much a habit for a long time. Um, and again, something, you know, which, which probably did not demonstrate whatever small talent I have to the best advantage, but um, just a delight, you know, it's, um, it's, uh, it's, it's a crossword puzzle in some ways, you know, it, it is, it is very much focused on word by word and connecting those words and, um, and, and, Appreciating the the beauty of the form. Indeed, it's, it's maybe it takes a different kind of reader as well too. It's difficult to just sit down and burn through a short story collection, whether it's yours or another. As a reader, you, you savor, you interpret, you dissect each piece. You need to to linger in that world, and that's certainly true of your stories uh, in this collection. What, what I was most struck by, because I guess I just simply didn't realize it, was that you are an occasional writer of speculative fiction, of futurist fiction. Can you talk a little bit about how you came to inhabit that world? Sure. Um, it snuck up on me, as I think it snuck up on so many literary writers of, um, of our time. Uh, you know, there was this moment when everybody and his uncle seemed to be writing a, a piece of uh, of speculative fiction but but I was really smitten with a few examples um in fact I'm just getting ready to teach again Chang Rei Lee's On Such a Full Sea and I love uh Margaret Atwood's Mad Adam uh trilogy mm-hmm. um Colson Whitehead has has dabbled in futurism, and the, you know those those moves that writers uh, like those three, and then who else? Zadie Smith, Jonathan Lethem. Jonathan Lethem, of course, is somebody who plays with all kinds of uh, all kinds of genre fiction. But you know, I just found myself delighted by what they were doing and it was not at all a conscious decision I didn't say well they can write futurist fiction why can't I Um, instead as I say it just snuck up on me and I think that makes a lot of sense in a time as anxious as this we have a whole lot to be worried about and we hear about it 24-7 you know, we it we are uh, we are bombarded by the realities of our failing planet, the possibility of not just this pandemic but pandemics to come. You know, there's just a hell of a lot of anxiety going on, and um, that that needs expression, that needs outlet, um, and. And so I found myself pretty blindly at the beginning of all these stories with some kind of image in in dog suicides. I I really and truly wanted to explore this question of, um, and I think it's an interesting question of um, how sentient, how sentient exactly are animals like dogs? Um, 
in the, in a, another story, a, an old couple is uh, is locked into a garage with each other, and we understand that they're they're hiding out from a, a group called the Constitutional Guard. And again, that was a story that just appeared to me as an image. Um, my neighborhood has these very large, old-fashioned Midwestern garages. They're quite wonderful. You know, you can have two cars and a workroom inside the space of a garage and store some of your spare furniture besides. But um, but that's where the idea for the story became, and gradually it became clear to me that I didn't want to explore our present moment. I wanted to explore a few years down the road. Not too many, but a few years down the road. I think it's, you know, there's a lot of good takeaways from that, too. First of all, we've learned a lot about garages in your neighborhood, which is handy <laughs> in assessing property values, I guess. But also, I love the idea that, that uh, your inspiration is so often an image accompanied by a question, sort of vision and then uh, an, an interrogation of that image, an inquiry into what it means. And, and that's very much the pattern that Ron Rash has described for the origins of, of so much of his work, too. He said, for example, that Serena, his, perhaps his best-known novel, began uh, with him having this vision of a woman on a horseback with, with an eagle and wondering, who is she? Why, why is she there? And our friend George Singleton, a very fine short story writer, said that his writing often begins with him having a vision of Ron Rash having a vision of a woman on a horseback with an eagle. <laughs> I think I think he may be making that part up, but it, it does. It does. You know, I love that pattern. Is that often true for you in in writing both short form and long form? That it begins with an image and a question of that image. I and that what you know. I nobody's ever asked me that question quite that way, and it's it's really useful because immediately I see. No, it's stories for me that begin with an image. Mm-hmm. Novels begin more with a sense of scene and also with a sense of voice. That I think the question for the question for any piece of fiction is is always for me first, who's going to tell this story? Mm-hmm. So you know, is this story going to be a first person story? Which which many of the stories in this collection are. At one point I thought I would I would I would sort of try to accumulate stories that were all narrated by women. And um, for the purposes of this book, not quite, not quite. But um, it, that was just an idle little project of mine. It, but that's the same case in a novel. You need to know who's going to tell this story or how many somebody's are going to tell this story. But the story, the story for me is very associated with this compact sense of place compact because the story itself is compact um i've not yet tried to write a story that ranged widely it would be a fun experiment but i i've not tried to do it i'm i'm interested in in a in a very compressed setting as well as as time um and for novels just the opposite you know i'm i'm hearing that voice i'm seeing people in dialogue, um, I I am very much a scene writer. I love, love, love the theater and always have. And um, I love reading plays as well. 
that's had a big impact on how I write fiction and how I conceive of fiction. So, you know, for me, even the most conceptual fiction, and my my fiction is generally not that conceptual, particularly in uh, origins, but even the, even the most conceptual fiction I write um, is very rooted in in scenes between characters. It shines through in, in your dialogue, which is always so crisp, so believable, and you're immediately pulled into the lives and hearts and minds of your characters every single time they speak. So I, I love encountering a nice dialogue. Have you seen in your novels or dialogue heavy stories? Because I know I'm going to get right to the heart of, of some fascinating people. You mentioned uh, Faulkner earlier on, and I want to circle back around to that because very much like Faulkner's Dr. Patafa, you too have created this this wonderful, fully developed, fully realized universe of Due East in which most of your novels take place and several of the stories in this collection as well. Could you talk a little bit about where that place comes from? Sure. That place really comes from Faulkner. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, I was a total Faulkner nut as an undergraduate. You know, I was um, besmitten and uh, read a lot, just about everything at the time. Not that I remember it all, but I, I, I read just about everything at the time. And um, this idea of setting everything in this place, seemed just wondrous to me. I had also read um, during a year, shortly after that, I guess, this this would be just after college, I, I came back to Beaufort and I taught for a year um, in what was then called the tech school, now um, now Low Country Tech, is tech, that right? Yeah. Is that Technical right? College of the Low Country. Technical yeah. College of the Low Country. Um so I would go to the Beaufort County Library every week and devour another volume of Balzac. And so those those guys who were writing these big, endless series that were basically, you know, the, the world in a small universe really, really appealed to me. And that's when I started on the Dewey East um, idea. All my earliest short stories when I was in grad school were, were set in, in Dewey East. And, in fact, the name of the thesis I wrote there was called In Due East. Um, and it was quite a shock to me when Pat Conroy <laughs> was um, making his own little universe set very similarly in yeah. um, a very specific location. Yes, indeed, uh, which had several names, but it was always his very his, uh, his vision of Buford, his vision of the low country. That's um, right. And I believed wholeheartedly in this idea of universe building, of world building, as I think he, he referred to it more often. That was, uh, one of his demands of a writer, give me a world, give me something that, that you know, I'm disappointed to leave when the book ends, that I want to stay and linger in. And do we use that kind of place? I'm wondering if it's for you, it feels like it's sort of always ongoing. It's the place that you just sort of check in to every so often and see what's going on and find these stories unfolding, or do you have to kind of push it along? Do you feel like you're, you're making the world, or the world is already there and it's speaking to you? Oh, the world is already there. And, what you know, one of the reasons that I started writing about other places as well, some of these stories are 
set in the Midwest and some are set in New York City. One of them is set in Dublin. Um, But one of the reasons I did that was because I felt guilty about writing about a place where I no longer lived. I felt, Mm. you know, I I was no James Joyce, um, milk in Dublin till my dying day. I, I thought, I don't know this place anymore. In some ways, I would think every time I came home, which was as often as I could, I don't recognize it anymore. Um, and I, I did not want to be the inauthentic uh, New Yorker for many years, as I was, um, write, writing sentimentally or melodramatically or just stereotypically about a South that was no longer mine. Um, but as you say, I can't let go, and it, it is still my place, and I hope to come home to that place for good at some point soon. Um, so, you know, I think I'll be writing about it till my dying day. But it feels good to, um, I guess, as any hometown does, it feels good to uh, abide in it a while and take a trip for a while. I think Mr. Conroy felt much the same way about being you know, an, an absentee writer of the Low Country. He's gone for about 20 years writing about Beaufort, trying to get back to him in his imagination that, that whole time. And in my limited but nonetheless wonderful experience with Beaufort thus far, I, I think it has a way of calling to it the people that it needs and certainly calling back to it the people that it needs back. And I hope in time you are one of those people in the back full-time in the low country. That would be a fantastically welcome moment in, in not just in literary life, but in life more broadly as well. Uh, so I think... Oh, happy to, happy to throw that out there for the universe, and I hope the universe will respond. But um, let's talk just a little bit about the, the stories that do take place outside of Dewey's that... that occupy a world of their own or, or a world that maybe overlaps a little bit between a couple of stories. We just coincidentally happened to be doing this show on September 23rd, the 71st birthday of Mr. Bruce Springsteen, a um, figure of uh, some lore and importance in my life, who also incidentally makes a couple of uh, small appearances by way of references in, a, in a, one of my favorites in the collection, Sleepwalk. So you don't necessarily have to Tell me about Mr. Springs, but I'd love to know about music more generally as an influence in your writing. Oh, what a wonderful question. Music, you know, I am the most um, casual listener, and I'm always 12 years behind whatever whatever's <laughs> happening musically. But I love, love, love music. I, I, I love it so much that I can't possibly listen to it when I'm writing because you know i will i will um i will just get lost in its rhythms or i would be dancing instead of writing so i know there are some writers who write with headphones and and have particular kinds of music they write to but not me buster i've got to you know i got to hear nothing but my own my own song while i'm writing and then um just break out and what better way to break out than with bruce um <laughs> You know, that's a, he's a good he's a good dancing man, and um, yes. I used to dance right. my my little boys around the uh, 
around the living room at 5 o'clock when they were getting antsy for their supper, and I didn't feel like getting in the kitchen yet. <laughs> Good way to burn off some steam and, and uh, engage the kids, too, I'm sure. I bet they love that. I bet they've got great memories to that. Uh, one, one did and one did not, <laughs> as is always the way with brothers. But they are, they too are big, um, are big music fans, and and you know I think everybody in the family has the same um, requirement, and that that is always that the that the lyrics match the the song, um, match the quality of the music. And uh, you know that that limits our listening. <laughs> there, uh, but Bruce certainly fits the bill. I mean, he he is he is a guy who writes r- really really interesting and and very often provocative lyrics. Indeed, uh, and writes well as well. There's a lot to draw on there. I'm a recent convert artist when I'm writing, which isn't something I ever thought I would be doing. Sort of the opposite of what you're describing. I, I need that, that second storyline sort of going on in the background. I need it. It's the mood of, of the music. It needs to help get me the right writing spot as well. Um, and I never thought I would do that. I've talked to a number of writers who do that. You have to list every novel or every story and they work that out in advance. And I thought I'd give it a shot recently. I think we're all, all Jonathan, I'm going to interrupt you for one moment. Um, you, you're breaking up, so I'm going to lift my receiver and see if that helps. Hello? Hello? Yes. Have you got me back? So sorry, I'm I'm not able to hear the other end. Valerie, can you hear me? I'm I'm not I'm I'm only getting some static. I'm I'm sorry. I'm still not able to hear anything but uh, but static.
Hey, Valerie, can you hear me? Ah, we're back. All right. We are, yes. Sorry That's about much that. better. Excellent. Good. Well, we'll stick with this, and we'll just okay. edit out our little bit of downtime in the middle there. All right. Yes. So how about we go back to Due East, uh, because there's a story in the collection that I've asked you to read a little bit from, and it's, it's one of my favorites. It's one I was familiar with beforehand, and that is Tidal Wave. So if you wouldn't mind, would you give us a little bit of that? Of course. This is the opening of Tidal Wave. In the early days of integration, when only white girls tried out for cheerleader, our elections were a cross between small-town participatory democracy, Soviet-style anointment of the chosen, and the Miss America pageant. We sat wrapped in the bleachers while the candidates cartwheeled in front of the whole school, flashing their white panties. Then we trooped back to homeroom to cast our votes. We were chatterers, smarty pants, A-track girls who raised our hands on one beat and never let the boys get a word in edgewise. We would never be cheerleaders, but we knew what it took. A cheerleader didn't need to be pretty, though most of ours were pretty, as a matter of fact, and a cheerleader didn't need to be athletic, though some of ours weren't too shabby in the handstand department. The cheerleader only needed to exude unshakable self-confidence and, maybe as a corollary, to beam bubbly friendliness and make it look like it wasn't fake. We knew all about fake friendliness. We were growing up in South Carolina, for God's sake. All our stories are unresolved high school stories. We were the tidal wave, the class of 69 at Dewey East High School, our school years punctuated by assassinations and riots, by the Tet Offensive, by flower children in San Francisco whose very existence suggested that we were living in some remote outpost of civilization that didn't get updates on a regular basis. The Dewey's boys who couldn't get a word in edgewise volunteered to go to war while the rest of America burned its draft cards. We heard that Bo Channing, who just moved to Due East from 29 Palms, smoked pot, but we couldn't imagine where he got hold of it or what would happen if the MPs caught him with it on base. We couldn't imagine what we would do if Bo Channing cast his icy hot gaze on us. We were a chorus that sang with one voice, and now in every Facebook post, we hear one of those voices standing close. We spend all our waking hours online, poring over photos, but the only face we really care about seeing again is Vonda Freeman's. She was our homecoming queen, our sweetheart of Dewey East High School, and once upon a time we A-track girls were her court. She was, yes, our head cheerleader. She was also the most self-contained girl we ever knew, so we're not surprised she boycotts Facebook. But that doesn't stop us from looking for her night and day. That doesn't stop us from craving her love. The minute we saw Vonda Freeman in freshman year when she stepped off the bus from St. Elizabeth's Island, we were stunned by her eyes, a strange light green. Would she mesmerize the boys the way she mesmerized us? We weren't entirely sure she was beautiful because redheads were not supposed to be beautiful and the auburn brows framing her cat eyes drew too thick a line. 
She wasn't even tanned, which was a challenge to everything we knew about the attributes of beautiful girls. Mr. Thigsby said we were ignorant little yahoos the way we slathered on baby oil and roasted ourselves at the beach when for centuries poets had known the most beautiful skin was alabaster skin. Look at Botticelli's Venus. Look at Vonda Freeman, for goodness sake. So we all did. We twisted in our seats toward the back of the room where Vonda's face had turned one of those fiery shades that is certainly not alabaster. She wore an expression we had never seen on each other's faces, a combination of pain and shame and sweetness, and she stared down at her desk so assiduously that Mr. Thigsby said, Vonda Sugar, I most certainly did not mean to put you on the spot, but now you have perfectly illustrated feminine grace. Later, we all agreed that when she finally allowed herself to look up that day with her slow-breaking smile, her eyes darted toward Margaret Washington and Marcus Toomer, who stared out the window as assiduously as Vonda had stared down at her desk while the white folk discussed the perfect shade of pale. Thank you, Valerie. It's, it's beautiful to hear that in your voice. You read so well. I imagine that's a bit of that theater background. Ah, uh, thank you. Oh. <laughs> it's a bit of a, well, the ham background, I think. <laughs> well, that's handy, too, I think. That's a, a good be. skill set to be able to call on. I'll tell you what I was so struck by uh, when I first encountered the story, and, and it's well represented in the passage you read, that most of the story, not all of the story, but most of the story has a plural first-person narrator. It's a we rather than, than an I, uh, which is something that doesn't happen that often. And there are some, certainly some well-known examples, the virgin suicides, for example. And I think Mr. Faulkner may have done this at some point, too, and a rose for Emily, if I remember that correctly. But could you talk right, a little bit about... the beginning of it, yes, and then a singular voice steps out. Or, yeah. Yes. How did you decide to do that? Or did you, in fact, decide to do that? Or did it just unfold that way for you as the storyteller? Oh, this is the rare example. And I can't even remember what it was. A little contemporary story um, that I assigned my students. And then I said, oh, we should all write a story in a collective voice, and and then I had to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, you know, but as soon as I said a collective voice, I thought, oh, girls. It, it, in fact, mm-hmm. at, first I thought, at first I thought girls in junior high, that's the collective voice. <laughs> but um, I also realized that uh, junior high is, is an age that perhaps, can't bear quite as much weight um, as I wanted this story to bear. I, I was really interested in, in exploring that incredible moment I lived through, which was, and in, in all my classmates lived through, which was the integration of the Beaufort schools. And um, I wanted to keep the surface of the story um very fanciful and, and light and in this collective voice, in the voice of people who, um, like like most most of us in junior high and high school, um, have a very hard time making up our own minds without seeing <laughs> what the rest of the herd is doing. Um, and, and a collective voice is really great for that. Uh, I actually wanted to tell the entire story in that collective voice, but 
you know, this this singular voice just broke out of it. This woman who who just feels terrible for all the ways she did not break away from the crowd, um, just had had to speak her own voice at some point in this story, and so she does. It's so well handled. She's so uh, vulnerable, I think is the word I'm looking for, when, when she switches from the we to the I, and, and we can see she's far removed. She's no longer part of this collective that still sort of exists, or the framework of it exists, but she's She's become her own at this point. There, there's, um, you know, a sort of recurring theme that I find in a lot of your your Dewey's uh, books and stories as well, and it's this the idea of of being isolated or removed or estranged or on the boundaries of the larger action, whether that's the local action or at least awareness that the, the world, the nation, is un- unfolding in these larger historical moments as well. Too, am I? Am I seeing that accurately? Would, would you agree with that assessment, that there are these moments of just absolute isolation and, and loneliness happening against these backdrops of, of larger actions in this world? Oh, absolutely. And I, I think that is that that is very much a, a, a bulwark of, of literature. You know, I think of all the Elena Ferranti novels. Um, you know, that that is that is so much about a young woman who feels, so very much on on the outside of the world mm-hmm. that even this 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 brilliant friend of hers with whom she shares such a passionate um and and you know really really and truly loving relationship becomes the the most estranged person in her life um over the course of those novels um so yes i i do think that's that's very much the case that and and it's frequently the case that the novel whether it's a building's roman or or um or a futurist tale um often often does explore the one character on the edge and and that of course is what we traditionally think of as the hero figure yeah it's the it's the the dynamic between the doer and the viewer, the person who's actually acting who's, versus the storyteller, the chronicler who's witnessing this but isn't isn't participating actively, isn't able to, for whatever reason, holds them back. And I love that dynamic. I love that you were able to do it with a collective voice in the story as well, too, before that, that lone character breaks out as well. But you mentioned wanting to capture this moment at, at the very real Beaufort High School, this moment of integration. You were class of 69, and I believe the school integrated fully in 1970, if I remember correctly, or was it 69 when that happened? No, we were not, right, we were not fully integrated. We, um, we all four years of high school, and I, I actually did not attend my freshman year. My, my dad was getting his Ph.D., and he, we were up in Columbia, South Carolina for my oh, freshman year. okay. Mm-hmm. But um, it, the, uh, the, 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 uh, all four years of my classmates were under what was called a freedom of choice plan. And that was a plan under which anybody who was brave could go integrate a school. So, I mean, I considered my um, black classmates incredibly brave. They really were. Um, And, you know, they, they came, of course, as, as, as anyone might make, this choice 
for for a whole variety of reasons. Um, I I have a friend who really came under duress from his parents, you know, who felt it was the right thing to do. Um, my um, my father, but both my parents, but my father in particular was just a really big believer in um, public schools in the South, even though he himself had attended grade school at a, you know, parochial school and only went to high school in a public school. He he just loved the idea of a public school, and he, he loved the idea that they would finally be integrated. And, um, you know, one of these one of these days when I was feeling very full of myself, I said to him, well, you know, I think it, it, you know, I think I might like to go to Robert Smalls high school or, or out to St. Helena high school. And those were the, those were the all black high schools in town and on, on the Island. And, um, you know, he, he said, would you, you know, with, with such hopefulness um, and that, you know, it was with the question that I realized I didn't have the courage, you know, I didn't have the courage to say goodbye to all my friends and and to be singular and to have people looking at me and wondering why I did this. Um, so I truly admired the black kids who came to our school because they were doing what I didn't have the courage to do. It is a hero's tale for not only those students, but those families who participated in that program. Uh, our friend Tony Grooms was a Freedom of Choice student as well, and I got to talk to him about that on this very show a couple of months ago about those experiences as well. Although, as Tony put it, uh, the, the Freedom of Choice was his parents' choice and not so much his choice. He went along with it uh, and, and embraced it in time. But it was really a decision made by his family and not by him and his sister. But... Um, you know, Pat Conroy was sort of, uh, well, not just sort of, but a, an essential part of that moment as well, being at first a faculty advisor for the Freedom of Choice students who wanted to create the Afro-American Culture Club and did do that, but also in incorporating the what may very well have been the first African-American studies class taught in any public school in the state of South Carolina in Beaufort High during the, the second of the two years he was teaching there. And there's a teacher figure that we encounter in, in Tidal Wave as well, Mr. Thigsby, who you mentioned in the reading a couple of times there, who seems to be a, a composite of, of several folks. Would you talk a little bit about where that character comes from? Yeah, I do think of that very much as a, if all the wonderful teachers at, at, at Buford High, Pat, of course, at the top of the list, but Jean Norris, Millen Ellis, um, and... Um, and Starkey Flythe, who did not teach me. In fact, he he was a generation before me. Um, Starkey Flythe, for for folks listening in, was a f fantastic South Carolina poet and short story writer um, and real character. And for a few of his early years, he taught at Buford High School. And that line about the most beautiful skin being alabaster skin was a line that my older sister reported to me uh, as consolation for my white, white skin. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody else in Beaufort had a tan, and I, I, I did not tan. And so she said, well, that's all right. Starkey Fly says that, you know, white skin is the most beautiful skin. 
mean it in that, you know, he did not mean it as opposed to black skin. He meant it no, as no. opposed to tan skin. But, <laughs> but the line stayed with me, as you can see, my entire life. So, yeah, that, that teacher is very much a composite. And it was wonderful how many principal teachers there were at Buford High School who really, who, who really helped us through um, what could be at times very, very tense situations. Pat absolutely kept the peace any number of times, and he, he did that by listening. And and um, I think you know the way he the way he opened himself up to African American students was um, was something that we all needed so badly in that moment. Pat said on several occasions that good teaching uh, always boiled down to good listening. So I think that, um, and that was certainly not a thought original to him. He probably got it from Gene Norris, who got it from somewhere else, and so on and so on, backwards and forwards across time. But it was absolutely central to his teaching philosophy to, to really listen to his students and not just simply tell them um, what to do, but to hear what, what their worldview was, what their anxieties and dreams and ambitions were as well. And you see that all through his stories of his own teaching and of being a student, for that matter, of being drawn to teachers who had that same instinct. And that would certainly have been essential in that moment. Right, exactly. So what happens to Valerie Sayers after Buford High School? Ah, well, you know, I, all through high school, I was just hell-bent for New York City. I, um, I I did a little bit of acting in high school, not a whole lot, but with the Beaufort Little Theater, and I was just smitten with that. My, uh, my family would go on trips to New York in the summer, uh, not every summer. We couldn't afford that, but we went when we could, and I was just, you know, bedazzled by Manhattan and, and wanted to be there. So I, uh, and not only that, I, I went to an experimental college. I was really drawn to this idea. You know, it was 1969, and um, the world was uh, exploding with um, with demonstrations and sit-ins and students students demanding this and that, and I was just really drawn to this idea of a, an experimental college. It was at Lincoln Center, so, you know, I, I knew that I would be in, in a world of theater, that it would be all around me, and so it was. Um, but it was hard. It was very hard to go from Beaufort to New York on my own. Um, it was the, – the college was – Fordham is a is a very old university, but the college I went to was a new one, and still finding itself, and still actual literally building itself. It didn't have a dormitory yet, and so I, um, you know, I had to find a place to live and really work my way through college in a way that I'm sure was good for my spine, but was tough. It was tough. Um, and then I and then I I stuck around. Uh, New York a little bit before I made a beeline right back to Beaufort and uh, taught taught at what I call the tech school and uh, just for one year and 
set myself this challenge of seeing if I really could be a writer. So I would teach all day, and then at night I'd go home, and if I wrote every night, um, then I then I got to call myself a writer. And um, it was during that year that I, I applied to Columbia to get an MFA and, you know, just really kept my head down and decided this was it. This was what I was going to do. You committed yourself to it, though. You, you gave yourself a, an, an ultimatum to go with your ambition, and you saw it through, and, and that's key to anything. I think that's, that's a, a wonderfully empowering story. I'm wondering at what point along this path that you decided teaching was going to be part of your life as well. Was it at the tech school? Was it before that? Was it after that? Well, you know, I, I, I so enjoyed that experience at the, at the tech school. It was such skin-of-my-teeth teaching. I was teaching uh, introduction to economics and business English and <laughs> relations, you know, and I was 21 years old, and I, I was decades younger than most of my students. It, they just thought I was cute or something, you know. They <laughs> indulged me, but... Um, but I enjoyed it tremendously. Oh, public speaking. I had a public speaking class that I just enjoyed. Um, so when, you know, when I was in grad school, I, I actually tutored one-on-one. Um, but I suppose there's enough performance in the classroom that I, I did find I missed missed the classroom. And as soon as I graduated from Columbia, I I, um, I started picking up classes around New York. This is a time-honored tradition, particularly in New York, to, for writers to teach a, a course here and a course there. Um, it's also tough and really, really ill-paid, <laughs> but it was good. It was good for teaching me how to teach, and it was mm. real good for writing time. You know, I. I just was able to um, to take big blocks of time and use it for writing every day. We've got about five minutes left in the show, and I want to make sure we get in uh, one other teaching experience you have because it's a world I've entered into fairly recently as well, and I'm really curious to know about your experiences, and that's that you teach in prison as well. You've uh, You have incarcerated students, as I do as well. Tell me a little bit about how you came to do that and, and what it means in your life at this point. Yes, I I was roped into it, uh, but I was, I was really willing and able. I'd been hearing about folks at Notre Dame who, who taught in various prisons, actually, around the state. Um, there were a number of faculty members who traveled to Michigan City to uh, to um i'm i'm blanking on the word to to yeah. <laughs> perhaps because it's it's not very useful to label the people who live in these institutions but it it was a high security prison um and then some a couple of faculty members at Notre Dame became very interested in starting an actual liberal arts program at a at a prison which is a little bit closer to us. It's about forty five minutes away. And and they um very, very bravely and uh cleverly went about hooking up with the Bard 
prison program, which was started at Bard College, um, and got a lot of structural support and ideas about how to go about it. And it's it's now a thriving college program, um, which probably involves oh 25 or 30 maybe faculty members from the University of Notre Dame and Holy Cross College, which is uh, a college right across the street from us. And so uh, faculty members usually just teach one course out there every couple of years. So I'm due up again. I've only only taught one course so far, and I'm I'm um, just embarking on the second one. So the the fall semester there, because of COVID, is starting a little late. Um, but I'm getting together my my taped lectures for a fiction writing class, and I will really really miss seeing the men because I think that was the profoundly moving part of the experience in a, on a kind of daily basis was just to be with men who were so hungry for books and ideas and so anxious to find a path um, out of prison, a path that would lead them in an entirely different direction. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I met some, um, some wonderfully gifted smart, really ambitious men, many of whom had entered the prison system at a real young age, uh, and many of whom, as is true all over America, uh, who were arrested from one end or the other because of drugs. So mm-hmm. all of it was eye-opening, but uh, almost every inch of it was was quite moving and and absolutely satisfying for for someone who usually teaches very privileged kids uh, who are magnificent. They're just delightful, but you know they don't even need me. <laughs> they really, you know, they could really find their way through college by by uh, picking up books and finding their own way. Uh, the men in the prison, by contrast, I think, you know, really need someone to say, here's what you should read. Why don't you try writing this? I've got some ideas for you. And um, that that was, that has been wonderful. How do you find it, Jonathan? Uh, every bit as validating and empowering and as wonderful as you describe. And, and I was roped into it, too. Uh, I was taken, I was invited to go out and speak to a group of uh, students in a journalism program, which was the only writing program they had at, at Allendale Correctional Institute, where I do this, to go out and talk to them for two hours, you know, one and done. Uh, but the person who took me out there, Holly Jackson, knew, uh, absolutely knew this was a trap, that I would fall in love with these guys, that I would see their potential and then I would be excited about going out there as often as I could, which has not been as often as I would like to. But I'm, I find uh, very much what you're describing, men who want to rewrite the end of their own story. And if they can do that on the page, then they can envision how to do that in the real world. And some of these are guys who, who are never going to get out. They're going to need to make the best life they can for themselves behind bars because that's where their life's going to unfold. But there are others who've, who really will get on the other side of, of the gate at some point, and they want to envision what that life is going to be. They want to give it shape and form and promise, and they, they do that through their words. They do that through their writing. 
and it's been amazing to, to see that to be a, a small part in what I hope will be their great big stories of redemption over time. So I'm so happy that I get to do it. I wish I could do it more often. I'm facing the same challenge that you are right now, that I can't, I can't go into the prison. I can't go into a lockdown situation. So things have to be recorded and sent in that way, which is not at all the same experience for student or for teacher, but it's the best we've got. It's what we've got to work with. That's right. And I, I think we're lucky that we, ha- we have a chance to see their writing because, you know, that, that's a very intimate way of, of knowing people, to know them through their writing. Indeed, it's a very vulnerable moment, too, and, and you know, vulnerability doesn't come easily in a prison situation. It's not something that, that the, these guys can do in their day-to-day existence, so that they, that they have an opportunity to do that in writing and that we get to be a part of that is a really powerful moment as well. We've got about two minutes left, and I want to use that time to do a quick plug for something that you're going to do uh, for us in Beaufort. Uh, folks can, can be a student of Valerie Sayers, and you don't even have to go to prison to do that because Valerie is going to teach a, a virtual workshop for us, an online workshop, as part of our upcoming Pat Conroy Literary Festival this November 5 through the 8th. And I believe on Friday, uh, November 6, you're teaching Finding Your Storytelling Voice for us, 1030 in the morning. Folks can still register for that workshop through the Conroy Center Facebook page or through patconroylitterarycenter.eventbrite.com, which is our workshop registration page. And then you also get to read for us uh, the next day, Saturday, the November 7th, as part of a panel of writers who, like you, were inducted into our state's Literary Hall of Fame, South Carolina Academy of Authors. So you'll be reading with two of this year's inductees, Pam Durban and Andrew Geyer, uh, both fantastic writers, both folks uh, who I'm uh, an avid fan of. Pam has been down to see us a couple times before, but this will be Drew's first time to help us out with the Conroy Center and the Conroy Festival. And I want to thank you so much, Valerie, for being a part of the festival again this year and for being on the podcast with me today. I really appreciate your time. What a pleasure. Thank you. I'll be back here on this show um, next month with another friend, John Lane, talking about his second novel. That show will be on October 21st. Thank you to Valerie Sayers. Thank you to our producer, Pam Stack. And thank you to all of our listeners out there in Radioland for joining us on Live from the Pat Conroy Center.